This is Who Deserves a Monument, Episode 8. If you've made it this far, you, like me, know way more about 150 years of American history than you did before Episode 1. If I've done them any justice, my hope is that you not only think that William Parker, Francis Harper, John Murphy, Victorine Adams, and Irene Morgan deserve monuments, but that a whole bunch of other people in their stories, and maybe your stories, do too. Part of me wondered, are people even making monuments anymore? We hear so much about them coming down, but not as much about them going up. But then Dolly Parton recently asked to be removed from consideration for a monument at the Tennessee Capitol building. So we know they're still making monuments somewhere. In Baltimore, there's a renewed proposal to transform the Christopher Columbus obelisk from the 1700s into a monument to the writer and civil rights activist W.E.B. Du Bois, who lived nearby. The suggestion is to paint the white stone monument in pan-African colors and rededicate it. But fewer than 100 people responded to a city councilman's survey on the subject a few years ago. Do people even care? Are monuments obsolete? Here's Martha Jones from Johns Hopkins. Well, my students just spent four weeks looking at monuments related to the history of women's suffrage. And the last assignment we did was connected with uh, a monument that the National Portrait Gallery is installing on one of its vacant plinths, and it's a monument to American women. And we really struggled with who you would put there and why. We really wrestled with that. Um, And their sort of best suggestions is that no more granite, no more bronze. We have, have command of technology today that means that monuments don't have to be cast in bronze at all, um, that they can be so they love the idea of a video installation, something that could change and was changeable and responsive and maybe even interactive. And for them, that was a much more um, amenable way to think about creating a monument. Okay, so something impermanent. That could be good. That could protect us from the high costs of granite and bronze and also from the changing perspectives on people's legacies. And interactive. That's definitely not something we get from most monuments today. When I asked the people I interviewed what their favorite monuments were, several said the same thing. Here's Robin Washington, the filmmaker. The Vietnam Memorial changed everything because it was interactive. You walked down into it. You put your hand against the wall. You rub the wall and you rub the names off. You look for the names of your loved ones or somebody from your neighborhood. There's no way you can go away from it without having an experience. And so it doesn't matter the particular art form, whether you're using a realist bronze statue or a granite slab. Um, It matters what you're trying to say and how well it says it and what's the interaction of people. Savannah Wood, John Murphy's great-great-granddaughter, she had a similar thought. I think about, um, I think it's Maya Lin's monument in D.C. for the Vietnam War Memorial as just a really striking um, spatial and experiential monument. I think about um, the Equal Justice Initiatives Museum and Memorial Site in Alabama 
that is a memorial site for lynching victims, which is, you know, two two sites about horrific death. <laughs> but they render it in a way that is really impactful as you experience it in your human body, um, in the way that your body relates to the site. So I would say maybe those are two of my favorite memorials because I think they really do justice to um, the topic at hand and um, and bring you as a living human being into that world of reverence in a way that feels um, correct, important, uh, or um, properly reverential, let's say. Maya Lin's Vietnam War Memorial, often referred to as The Wall, is on the National Mall in Washington, D.C. It's a subtle, V-shaped granite wall that gently slopes downward into the earth, etched with nearly 58,000 names of American servicemen, listed in chronological order of their loss. Lynn entered a public contest, a nationwide call for ideas for the monument, back in 1981. Hers was one of more than 1,400 submissions, posted in an airplane hangar for an eight-member jury to judge based solely on the quality of the designs, not on anyone's name or reputation. The judges chose entry 1026, which they described as an eloquent place where the simple meeting of earth, sky, and remembered names contained messages for all. Maya Lin's design only earned her a B in class, so imagine her shock when competition officials came to her dorm room and informed her that she had won. You guys, Maya Lin was 21 years old, a college student, doing an assignment for her funeral architecture class. I actually cried when I read this story, not just because I haven't slept much in the three months I've been writing this podcast, but because of the full circle moment it gave me. Young people and their ideas about monuments. Am I right? How many times have I been to that monument, run my hands over the names, without ever knowing where it came from? My parents even had the commemorative coffee table book that we bought when we were there in 1989. I still didn't know that story. Lynn immediately experienced backlash for her design. Ross Perot withdrew the money he had committed. People hated the simplicity of it, the black color, the way it descended into the ground, the lack of patriotic symbols, the focus only on the dead and not on the living veterans. But while the organizers did make some small concessions, they stuck with her design. And now we have one of the most beloved monuments in the country, a place of healing and remembrance. Mr. Toops told us in episode two about how the city of Baltimore opened up a call to citizens to submit ideas for monuments into an online portal. This was the framing for the students' projects. They had a chance to design their own monuments and pitch them to the city. Back then in 2019, I interviewed Ryan Patterson. At the time, Ryan oversaw public art projects for the city of Baltimore, including the monument portal. Now he does the same thing for the State Arts Council. I asked Ryan about the portal. It was an immediate reaction to let people provide some um, ideas and proposals for how to address the locations where the monuments have been removed. And it was intended to be uh, for temporary ideas, not replacement monuments and not forever monuments. So as much as the the portal uh, was about um, collecting ideas. It was also about getting some ideas to build a case that we should create a way that people could apply to use those spaces. And I'll tell you what, what was funny is we got a number of really good proposals that were for temporary uses, but we overwhelmingly got a number of proposals for 
permanent statues, the people that that uh, Baltimoreans wanted to honor. And um, that wasn't the intention, but we ended up with this list of the people that hadn't been recognized that people thought should be. And it was everything from, you know, we don't have a Harriet Tubman sculpture. And we don't have a Frederick Douglass sculpture. And in fact, we, we do have a Frederick Douglass sculpture. But, you know, people saying, I want to see that, which is fine uh, to have more than one, of course. Uh, but um, there was like this lady lives on the end of my block and she has fed everybody Thanksgiving for the last 25 years, you know, or um, – you know, uh, this person always keeps the playground clean and we should give them a monument. Ryan told me that in the end, they didn't actually have funding to do anything with all the suggestions that came in through the portal and from the students. And that everything takes forever in the city. And these guys did the thing that was important. They prototyped it and tried it right away. They researched, they picked people, they used some clay and they like figured it out. And I thought that was just amazing. You know, like, Thank God that these students could like get past the bureaucracy of, of their their in their classroom to like produce these projects. And um uh that was really cool. I told him that I thought we had an amazing opportunity to make our city more reflective of its residents. I absolutely agree. And also to empower these students to feel that they have the power to to advocate for that kind of thing and to to change to what their landscape looks like. That they don't have to live with what they see, but they get to talk about what they'd like to see. Like that is so powerful. It's an important lesson to learn early that the power is in their hands to do that. I checked in with a few students at City Neighbors last week. Hi, I'm Tiana Hunt. I'm an 11th grader in City Neighbors High School. Um, This is actually my first year here. I'm a transfer student. So it's quite exciting. I'm from Jamaica. Tiana completed Mr. Toops' monument project this past fall. I think it was really interesting It was very surprising when I heard of it because I'm coming from a school where we get, like, we learn content and then we're tested. But here we're sent to research things that we've never been taught before and then create an argument to support whatever claim we chose to make based on the person we researched. So that was quite a unique experience. I chose Juanita Jackson Mitchell. Both of the students I spoke to who did the project in the last two years chose Juanita Jackson Mitchell. She was indeed very amazing. Do we smell a bonus episode? For now, let's let Tiana tell us about her. Okay, so at the time when I was researching her, it was my goal to become a lawyer and civil rights activist. That has changed. But when I started researching prospective people, I came across her profile and I saw that she was a lawyer and she was an avid advocate for civil rights and human rights. And so I thought that I was like, it's fate. And I was like, this woman is now my role model. And as she grew up, she realized that, yes, they say separate, but equal, but it's clear that we're not equal. Blacks and whites, we're not equal. And so she went in the NAACP, I believe, And she started advocating with them. And she started working in many civil rights cases, for example, or Brown v. Board of Education, where they um, successfully got the Supreme Court to rule in favor of desegregating um, schools during that time. So that was very interesting. And she visited some people in prison who were wrongly accused. 
just trying to um, bring attention to their case and just get help from the public. And she had some success in that. So that was really amazing. And I thought if there's anyone who deserves a monument, it is this lady right here. I asked Tiana if she had a favorite monument. In Jamaica, we have the Bob Marley Museum. I love that place. My first time going there. It taught me a lot about Bob Marley that I did not know. And it was it was just a unique experience. And I like the fact that so many people could come from different parishes in Jamaica and just gather all in that one place to just learn and share a common interest. I believe it was his house or workspace but what they do they tell you about the different parts of his life and what he did Bob Marley's a reggae singer and he traveled around the world and he like inspired through music and so that was really cool and so they taught us his history then they sung some songs of his and occasionally you would see one of his sons he has many children I believe and the sons would just come and speak about their father which is really cool and then we have the chance to go and look at the monument and just just be like, thanks, Bob. Thank you for letting people know that Jamaica, this small island in the Caribbean, has such a great impact and has so many talented people. I wish I could say there was something cool underway in the city regarding monuments or houses of famous musicians, but there's not. In fact, jazz legend Cab Calloway's home as a teenager in Baltimore was just demolished after a long battle by activists to preserve it as a historic landmark. The city is apparently building a park in his honor, but Calloway's grandson wonders if the homes of Babe Ruth or Edgar Allan Poe would have met the same fate. So Baltimore is not exactly leading the pack on innovative memorials, but that doesn't mean exciting things aren't happening. Ryan Patterson and I talked about something called the Monument Lab. We were also accused of uh, a couple times by the art community. You know, I'd run into people go, "Oh, you're just trying to replicate Monument Lab." And uh, the truth is, we couldn't. Like Monument Lab was an amazing project that um, had a tremendous amount of funding and had been planned for about four years. And to their curatorial credit, you know, they saw this as an issue before it became a hot button issue for the media and the public, and they worked to address it and raised money for, like I said, like four years ahead of it, making plans and working with artists on what they would do. Monument Lab is in Philadelphia. It's an incredible public art project that is redefining monuments in that city. In 2015, Monument Lab created a learning lab for students and educators to gather hundreds of public monument proposals. In 2017, they launched temporary prototype monuments by 20 artists across 10 sites in Philadelphia's public squares and parks. One artist boxed a monument in mirrors, so it kind of disappeared into the surrounding trees. Another monument was a big plinth with the word me carved on it and a plexiglass enclosed platform so you could climb up and become a monument yourself. Researchers collected input from 250,000 local and out-of-town visitors and collected 4,500 monument proposals from passersby. Like, people drew and described their monuments with a Sharpie on a clipboard. Then the Monument Lab shared them in a report to the city. In 2020, Monument Lab received a $4 million grant, part of a $250 million investment from the Andrew Mellon Foundation, to reimagine monuments across the country. As part of that grant, Monument Lab is doing a national audit of monuments, cataloging the subjects of monuments and their race, gender, sexual orientation, and other meaningful distinctions. 
They'll also capture the protest activity related to the monument, and they'll share their results this spring. In 2021, they'll grant funds to create 10 new Monument Lab field offices that will reimagine monuments in cities, regions, and communities across the country. This is very cool, right? So maybe we are going to see some actual monuments to William Parker, Francis Harper, John Murphy, Victorine Adams, and Irene Morgan. Or maybe we aren't. But there are so many ways to honor their legacies. Here's Rick Parker, William Parker's great-great-grandson. I think the sad thing is, is that William Parker, not many people know who he was. I found that. Like other than Southern Pennsylvania and Christiana, you don't find much written about William Parker. And I think it's a sad part of history. And that's one of my goals is, is to make William Parker, give him the credit he deserves. In Christiana, Pennsylvania, there's a historical marker of William Parker's rebellion. The flags that fly on the light posts in town say freedom began here. There are markers dedicated to the memory of both William and Eliza Parker. Christiana held a series of events to commemorate the 150th anniversary of the rebellion in 2001. They included a parade of 35 mounted African-American Buffalo soldiers. They had floats, marching bands, and period reenactors. Descendants of those on both sides of the battle attended, including Gorsuch's and Parker's. They hosted a reconciliation dinner for all of the families involved, and local officials prided themselves on an even-handed treatment of the confrontation. The Hatfields and McCoys do this every year. I know because I'm a Hatfield, and like I have the internet and stuff. Rick Parker sent me several photos from his various trips to learn about and honor his family. A before photo where William Parker's grave marker in Ohio is four dirty white stones stacked on top of each other. Tall, yes, but nearly impossible to read. After a cleaning, it says, William Parker, bold as a lion, clear as day. Going back to Kenton, I went down there with my son and basically replaced the tombstone on there, which is something. And it, it was kind of a... A sentimental journey for me is something I felt I had to do. My goal was always to bring a bottle of champagne, three glasses, my son and I. I would have a glass of champagne and, and uh, you know, Mitchell and I would have a, a, a drink and put the other glass right where the tombstone was and then leave the bottle. But everything went all right until there was, there was, of course, was left in the bottles of champagne. I went to leave it there. My son, basically, I thought he was going to cry with that bottle of champagne. <laughs> so needless to say, didn't leave the bottle there. That was... <laughs> well, we toast you, William Parker, even though your great-great-great-grandson couldn't bear to leave the good champagne behind. When it comes to Frances Harper, Martha Jones has some ideas about her legacy. But I think it's less about ossifying her and more how do you make her a sort of a living, breathing presence. I worked with the students at Baltimore School of the Arts two years ago on the, the sophomore project. And they used my previous book, which is about Baltimore and early Black Baltimore called Birthright Citizens. And they created vignettes that included characters from that book, including Frances Ellen Watkins Harper. And um, performed them here at One Mount Vernon Place at the Walters Museum. 
And um, that was amazing. And the one thing that it will never leave me is during the during the rehearsal, the read through. One day, one of the students said to us, "You know, why did they keep this history from us all this time? Why didn't anybody tell us about these people?" You know, so there is work for I think Frances Harper and people like her to do in in Baltimore. And maybe it's as simple. Maybe we should all be writing young adult books in addition to the characters of Tubman and Douglas,、um, introducing these characters to young people. I think that would be amazing. So this is definitely a theme. The bad news is you're not going to find these five people in American history textbooks. The good news is textbooks, at least the ones I grew up with, are kind of becoming obsolete. Textbooks, especially social studies, have long been problematic. I first read the book "Lies My Teacher Told Me: Everything Your American History Textbook Got Wrong" in 2005. I know this because the inscription on my book reads "Merry Christmas, 2005. Love, Mom and Dad." Thanks, guys. This book was a revelation for me. Its author, James Lowen, painstakingly reviews the most widely used American history textbooks and critiques what they say and what they don't say against an expansive and inclusive accounting of history. A few years later, I would read Howard Zinn's *A People's History of the United States* and similarly be too surprised by the voices I had never heard in American history. I'm a smart person, but even I wasn't thinking critically when it came to what I knew about American history. Both books show us how much we miss by centering white Christian narratives, how many myths we perpetuate, and storytellers we silence. The real bummer is that textbooks are highly politicized. Textbook content is approved by state panels, typically panels appointed by partisan elected officials like governors, and that makes a huge difference. The New York Times recently reviewed eight commonly used American history textbooks in California and Texas. Two of the largest states, but also on opposite ends of the political spectrum, they found a lot of differences in the same book by the same publisher, depending on which state's version it was. Some differences were subtle; others were extensive. The Texas version attributes the South's resistance to Reconstruction to higher taxes, while the California version of the same textbook attributes it to racism. Whole paragraphs on redlining and restrictive deeds in the California version are absent from the Texas version. Which doesn't cover housing discrimination at all. In general, conservatives tend to fight for schools to promote patriotism, Christianity, and the founding fathers. Those states have more unfettered heroic tales in their textbooks. Lots of winning, lots of winners. Those on the left have pushed for a focus on more marginalized groups, such as enslaved people, women, and Native Americans. So students in more liberal states hear more of those stories. You won't often see Frances Harper in textbooks in America, but. Apparently, you will in Europe and China. Here's Melba Boyd. And in my experiences traveling around the world, and I've traveled all over Europe and China, and I, interestingly enough, they will have known about a Harper because in their American literature books, there's not as much discrimination as we have here, or even in China, where they were majoring in English, and they said, "Oh, we know about them." And I'm like, "Really?" Oh yeah, when 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 what they called their high school, and they were studying English, they were reading their poetry. So students in other parts of the world study Frances Harper in high school. That's something. And in Detroit, the late poet laureate Naomi Long Maget 
advocated for a diversification of the city's school curriculum, and she got it. And it was with so much excitement and pride when my daughter was a, a freshman in high school at Cass Technical High School here in Detroit, which is supposed to be deep, the one of the premier high schools, not just in Detroit, but in the country. And she came home with her English book, textbook, and Frances Harper was in the book. And she's like, Mama, Mama, Frances Harper's in my book. You've got to come and talk to my class because my, my friends, they don't believe me. They don't believe me. <laughs> and so I'm saying that kind of change, you don't know how much her poetry has affected and impacted students when they just, they, they could have been majoring in engineering, but they had to take, you know, a African-American culture flowers, right? And they're reading Frances Harper. And they're just, in my experience with those students who are not necessarily our majors um, and who didn't um, have that textbook or went, did not go to my daughter's high school and had not encountered um, Frances Harper, for example, then they're like, wow, wow. Um, and she was doing this when, you know, they get, get very excited about that. The reason textbooks are increasingly obsolete is the Internet and how teachers use it. Teachers are so inventive, often preferring to curate their own curriculum from the vast sources of information available online. Over two years ago when I started this project, I joined the Facebook group Middle School Social Studies Teachers. And I'm amazed at how much time and thought teachers across the country are putting into teaching history in an inclusive way. It's so inspiring. Martha Jones talked about how two years ago, students at Baltimore School for the Arts included Frances Harper in their sophomore project, writing and performing short plays on her life. This year, their project is on Druid Hill Avenue in the early 1900s, the stately thoroughfare where John H. Murphy Sr. lived and where the Afro's offices were. Much like they were shocked they didn't know about Frances Harper, I bet they'll be shocked they didn't know about the Murphys. Here's Savannah Wood again. I'm really excited that the students in Baltimore City um, found and selected John H. Murphy as somebody who's worthy of a monument. I think um, his deep, deep ties to Baltimore and his existing legacy that's ongoing that you can still physically see and touch really makes it clear to people. It makes a clear connection to the past for people who are living in the present, uh, which is rare and and important. In a way, I mean, there's plenty of people who I think um, could deserve a monument, certainly in Baltimore. Um, but for some folks, it's like it might have been that they made legislative change and that affects your daily life, but it's not quite as connected or tangible. You can't really see it in the same way. And so I think um, because the newspaper still exists to this day, because it's still run by the family, it's a really clear connection that people can hold on to. Although we know little about John Murphy when compared to our later subjects like Victorine Adams, we know precious less about his wife, Martha Howard Murphy. The same goes for William Parker's wife, Eliza. You know, Eliza who stood in the window blowing the horn to alert the valley while bullets flew past her head. It takes work to unbury these stories, but it's possible. Here's Savannah Wood. So whenever I've heard the story of the founding of the newspaper, it went sort of like, John H. Murphy got $200 from his wife to buy the, the name and the printing press, and this is the Afro that we know today. But I've never really heard in detail the story of how his wife came to have that money. So why did this Black woman in 1892 have $200 that she could give to her husband on 
an investment that, you know, clearly he was serious about, but was a risk. $200, I think, I looked this up some time ago, and I think it's about 5000 in today's dollars, something like that. Um, and so I had this question in the back of my head, because I, I kind of consider her a founder of the newspaper because of this initial investment, and I haven't really heard her name before. And one day I was in the archives looking for something completely different and found an oddly shaped box and opened it. And within the box was a scrapbook of Martha Murphy's um, funeral. And you open the first page and there's a picture of her right in the middle and a full obituary listing all the things that she had done in her life and all of this great information um, that I had not been looking for, but what came, came and found me. And so from that, I started looking more deeply into her history and trying to understand a little bit more about where she came from and where this money came from and all these things. And she has a really fascinating history. Her, She and her father, and I would assume her mother, but her mother is much less documented, um, were born enslaved in Montgomery County. And um, her father ended up he was given a little portion of land to farm for himself and he would be the one to take the produce into market in Baltimore. Over time, he saved up enough money to buy himself and his wife out of slavery and then they bought their children out of slavery and eventually they purchased the land that they had been enslaved on from their former enslavers. So this all happened within his lifetime and within her lifetime, which is an incredible story. And so, you know, over time, he had really great farming skills or something, but the land improved under his stewardship, basically. So in the tax records, you see that it's worth more over time because he is the steward of it. And so when he died, he left the land to all his children in equal portions. And Martha ended up send it, selling a portion of her land to her brother and used the proceeds from that to invest in the Afro. Both the Murphy family and Willie and Victorine Adams are getting a very special new treatment that we should all be excited about. Margot Lee Shetterly, the New York Times bestselling author of Hidden Figures, is writing a new book that brings Baltimore's history to life through the story of the Murphys and the Adamses. How cool is that? I can't wait to learn everything I missed. I shared the news with Noelle Flournoy, one of Mr. Toops' students from episode two, who did her project on Victorine. She was pumped. That's so crazy. That is really crazy because, I mean, I don't, I feel like, I mean, I mean, I don't know, the world is big, but I felt like since I didn't know her, nobody knew about her. So now she's getting a book written about her. I, I mean, I don't know if this is like narcissistic or anything, but like, I felt like I made a difference. I don't know if I did, but that's just how I feel. I told her that's exactly how she should feel. So this best-selling author has to follow up on a massively successful last book. And of all the people and topics in the world, she picks Baltimore and the Adamses and the Murphys after the students at City Neighbors plucked them out of history. Okay, so let's do a little recap on all the ways we might remember someone great. There are markers, festivals, and events. There's books and stories and school projects. But there's also life, like how we live. I can't help but think that there's one thing Frances Harper and Victorine Adams would really, really like for us to do in their honor. Vote! V-O-T-E. Vote! If you take nothing else from this podcast, let it be that people fought tirelessly for over a century, risked their lives for the right to vote. 
And I'll be honest, we're not doing their sacrifices justice. Nationally, voter turnout surged in 2020, with nearly two-thirds of registered voters voting. Still, that's less than 67% of those who were registered, which is to say nothing of the people who aren't even registered. In Baltimore, about 46% of eligible voters voted in the Democratic primary in 2020, which, in a city that's overwhelmingly Democrat, is basically the general election. Still, this is actually an improvement, and this is despite a pandemic. For the big presidential election in 2020, 60% of registered voters turned out in Baltimore, below the national average and a bit below the 2016 presidential election. We've got work to do. Noelle said something that I think Victorine and her pal Harry Cole would appreciate hearing. I feel like once my generation is old enough to go into politics, I think the world will change. I cater to the people. I mean, I'd come up with a valid argument on why this should happen or why we should have this and not this, because at the end of the day, we cater to the people of Baltimore City. It's not really what we want, it's what they want, because they live here, they have to see this every day, and if they're not comfortable with it, then they're not comfortable being here. And the whole point of being in politics is to cater to people. So you can honor the legacies of great leaders by voting. You can put your name on a ballot and represent marginalized people yourself. Or you can vote with your feet, with your presence. And that's what Irene Morgan would be doing, according to her daughter. I think in terms of more recent activism, uh, I think she would say folks like Stacey Abrams, uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Marion Wright Edelman, uh, Cheryl Eiffel, Ben Jealous. Uh, and I think also she would be in favor of the founders of the Black Lives Movement. Um, and I think she, if she were here, would be right on their front lines. And also the Me Too movement. And she is, would be an advocate for equal pay uh, for women. Um, I think, yeah, along with the Black Lives Matter, um, I think those would be movements she would be involved in today. And she believed in peaceful protests, always. Direct action is certainly also a theme of this podcast, right? Think about all the boycotts we covered, the door knocking, the peaceful resistance, the organizing. I spoke with monument activist and teacher Owen Silverman Andrews about the strategies he's used in fighting for offensive monuments to come down and more inclusive symbols to go up. One is direct action, and there is uh, a role for a diversity of tactics, petitioning, uh, working with elected officials, community leaders, marches, artistic expression, op-eds, all of that has a place. There were petitions submitted to the councilwoman, uh, Mary Pat Clark at the time. There was testimony before the commission that then Mayor Stephanie Rollins-Blake set up. There were conversations with BOPA, with the Friends of Wymondale Park, with the BMA. Um, that was the inside strategy. And until there is uh, the pressure that can only come from uh, civil disobedience or the, the threat of something more direct happening, uh, then 
I think people who are in power, whether they're sympathetic, uh, whether they have um, deep and personal lived experience or understanding of anti-racism, there will always be a better time or a higher priority, especially in a city with so many pressing priorities. And so in order to make now the time to take action on something, there has to be both uh, escalating pressure and direct action and the threat of something even more. So I think the, the example with the Lee Jackson monuments and the others being removed, you know, we had done all kinds of direct action. I had received a c- civil citation and, you know, fought it in court and all of that. But until some organizers in West Baltimore said, 24 hours, we're going to pull it down ourselves, then there's always a better time or always a higher priority than doing what, what's needed by and demanded by folks in, in the community. As we know from how she lived her life, Irene Morgan would be all about direct action, but she would never advocate for a monument for herself. That doesn't mean that others don't want to elevate her story. Here's historian Ray Arsenault. Uh, after my book came out in 2006, um, one of the, really the Freedom Rider trainers, Kwame Leo Leonard from Nashville, he and along with Diane Nash did the, the nonviolent training for all the Freedom Riders that, who came through Nashville. And uh, he was also the first black elected to the city council in Nashville. But he, like a lot of the Freedom Riders, they knew what, what they had done during the Freedom Rides. Uh, they knew what they saw, but they didn't know the whole picture until they read my book, which, which was the first book on the Freedom Rides. And you know, I spent nine years tracking them all down and getting to know them, be, almost becoming one of them. And um, he was so taken with the first chapter on, on Irene Morgan that he, he called me and he said, I, I want to go and meet this woman and I want to I want to present uh, 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 something to her, a gift, and he did. He and a couple of other the Nashville riders got in the car and drove up to Gloucester County, and uh, they spent I think several days with her, and just he came back just glowing. He was just captivated by her, uh, and I thought that was a wonderful kind of ending, or, or kind of you know um, completing the circle when. Uh, Kwame called me and he said, how come I never heard of this woman before? Nobody mentioned it during their freedom rides. Um, I, I feel like she had an incredible influence on my life. I don't, we wouldn't, wouldn't have had a freedom ride if it hadn't been for this woman. Makes me smile now to think about it. Robin Washington also takes a personal interest in fostering Irene Morgan's legacy. When we started, again, in history books, black history books, American history, whatever, it would say Morgan v. Virginia. If you look in the books now, it says Morgan Irene. So, I mean, there are more and more mentions. Uh, Wonderful. Two state monuments in Virginia have been erected. One a year ago as we speak, exactly. Uh, There's an Irene Morgan fun run. There are thoughts of turning it into the Irene Morgan Marathon. This distance between where she got on the bus in Gloucester, Virginia, and uh, where she was thrown off the bus in Saluda, Saluda Courthouse, Virginia, is, guess what, 26 miles. (laughs) Does that not say Irene Morgan Marathon? So hopefully at the days when we go back to running in public, uh, that will be part of it. 
Irene Morgan's granddaughter, Janine, likes the new markers honoring her grandmother in Virginia. So I think that things like that are really important because they're there in perpetuity and future generations will learn about people and what they've done. And it will hopefully be a more inclusive um, telling of American history. And I know in Virginia, there really there's been some sort of a reckoning with really trying to go back and look at all these areas and determine, you know, which which folks have not been honored who should have been honored. In Baltimore, we're moving past the past, even if the future isn't perfectly clear. Here's Owen Silverman Andrews on what was once the Jackson and Lee Monument. In my experience, most people moved past it as quickly as possible because it was a site of uh, fear. It was a warning that was put up to generals on horseback looking down sternly on this space. Uh, it moved from that to a place where there were community gatherings, there was various art projects installed. Um, there was you know, graffiti with different political messages. People were skateboarding there. People were, were hanging out there. And I remember the first night when it came down, you know, all the people had organized for years, we ordered a pizza and had a pizza delivered there. And I, don't, you know, I never saw people picnicking or eating pizza there before. So I think it, it moved from a place of, of fear and a warning to a place of possibility and inquiry and, and creation and kind of the negative space allowed for that to happen in a way where when you put up a monument to someone, no matter how good they are in our current understanding and no matter how positive the intentions, you fill that space and there's less room for inquiry, there's less room for questioning or imagining. And so there is some value, I think, to having a negative space there at the end of all of this, I'm left thinking, maybe it's less about who deserves a monument and more about who decides a monument. Who decides the symbols and stories that define our public spaces? That's the hard work. That's how we move our cities forward. And I think young people have to be at the table. Irene Morgan's granddaughter agrees. Thank you so much for an opportunity to tell my grandmom's story. Thank you so much. She would be so excited about the fact that high school students submitted her name because she really, really loved young people. And that probably would be one of the greatest honors for her, that it came from young people. This podcast has been a labor of love. I feel like I was gifted with these stories by the students at City Neighbors, and I want to thank them and Mr. Toops for sparking this exploration. I also want to thank all of the incredible contributors to this podcast. Tony Draper, the publisher of The Afro, was my first yes, and she gave me the confidence to continue to pursue important voices, and there are so many in this podcast. I don't know how much you know about me by this point, but I'm a researcher and a writer. I am most definitely not a sound designer. I have to thank Brian Rio and Melissa Terry for responding to a public call for technical support and introducing me to Chloe Vantel. I have to thank Chloe for being the brightest ray of sunshine and truly making my sonic dreams come true. She's the one behind every fight scene, every train whistle, every moment of intrigue, every song that made you feel something. Thank you, Chloe. And finally, thank you to all of you listeners. I dreamed of having a podcast and you've made it so meaningful. You can keep following along on Facebook at Monument Pod, and eventually I'll pop into this feed with my next podcast. I'd love to hear from you. What should I do next? What do you think about this podcast? Email me at hello at booksmartmedia.com.
I'll leave you with my first real-time review from Callie at City Neighbors, who has listened to every episode. I thought it was great. I really like how um, it has like little snippets of people talking and then you like butting in and making jokes. It's like it's like a conversation almost. I listened to maybe two episodes with my mom. She's like, I like her. She's really great. Thanks, Callie's mom. Who Deserves a Monument is developed, written, and produced by me, Sarah Lonas, with sound design, editing, and mixing by Chloe Vantel. Our cover art is by Deshaun Fortune. I'd like to thank Noelle Flournoy, Callie Brizzy, Tiana Hunt, and Owen Silverman-Andrews. Who Deserves a Monument is a production of Booksmart Media. Until next time, and there will be a next time. <laughs>